Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. What's next after former President Trump's arraignment? A legal expert predicts a speedy motion to dismiss by Trump's team. That's over concerns about Trump getting a fair trial. The Tennessee legislature might expel three Democrat lawmakers. That's after what some are calling an insurrection at Tennessee's state capitol last week. Big changes are coming to North Carolina's General Assembly. A lawmaker switching parties has created a supermajority in the state. The people of Chicago went to the polls to choose a new mayor yesterday. We have the results of who will sit in the chair occupied by Lori Lightfoot. We start with some legal analysis of the Trump case. I wanted to learn more about what is expected to happen before the trial if one does take place, so I spoke with an expert. Joining us now is Rob Henneke, Executive Director and General Counsel of the Texas Public Policy Foundation and former Texas prosecutor. Great to have you with us, Rob. Thank you for having me. There is a prediction among some legal analysts that this case will end up in trial. What would the prosecution have to show to prove Trump covered up hush money? Well, first of all, the prosecution has to show that there's a crime, which the indictment does not do so. Under this theory that's been advanced by the New York District Attorney, the underlying crime, they allege, is beyond the statute of limitations, given that it happened more than five years ago. Uh, but their theory rests upon tying a misdemeanor kind of business paperwork violation to uh, another offense. In this case, the theory is that it was a uh, election um, ethics reporting offense to not report the payment in Trump's campaign filings, but they haven't alleged that second offense in the indictment. So right now it's kind of smoke mirrors and allegations that doesn't even on its face present a, a complete accusation against the president. Interesting that there's this implied second offense. When do we expect Trump's legal team to file a motion to dismiss? And what other elements are part of this pretrial process? I expect it to be immediately. Uh, the Trump team is going to attack the indictment as being deficient, and it is. I mean, the indictment is required to uh, describe and identify the accusations against the accused. And so the district attorney is not allowed to just kind of you know, come back later with additional facts or crimes on that. So they're going to attack that as being deficient. I expect a motion here in the next week or two seeking to quash the indictment that the Trump team will, will immediately want to litigate to get this case thrown out of court. Trump alleges the indictment is election interference. Can you comment on the timing of the DA's decision? I, oh, I agree with with that allegation. I mean, this is very politically motivated here. Let's recognize the process is the punishment with the attempt by the New York DA to influence the 2024 presidential election. And to connected with that, uh, it's it's no surprise the New York DA has asked for the next court hearing to be set in December of this year, right before the primary elections, and is asking the judge to set a January trial in the case, which would overlap with the initial uh, primary state's voting. So this is very nakedly tied to the election activities. It's an improper case. I think it's an abuse of power. And the DA is absolutely using this to try to influence the outcome of next year's election. Other than the pretrial motions, we're not going to hear anything about this case until December. Is that what you expect? 
It's not. I, I expect that as part of the abuse of power here, the prosecutor is going to use this case as a way of breaking up the momentum of President Trump's presidential campaign. That any time that President Trump is gaining momentum or any time that Biden is stumbling along the campaign trail, the New York DA is going to set a hearing or have some kind of announcement or something to haul President Trump back to state criminal district court as a way of breaking up his momentum. So. Even though the, the December hearing keeps the case looming out there in the distance, I do expect for the DA to continue to abuse his power by using the court process to break up the momentum of the Trump campaign. Rob Henneke, Texas Public Policy Foundation, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Former President Trump has responded to the charges against him. In a primetime speech in Florida last night, Trump addressed supporters from his Mar-a-Lago estate. That was about two hours after returning from New York. He says election interference is behind the criminal charges, and at a minimum, Bragg should resign. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Trump's remarks from Mar-a-Lago. Trump spoke to an invite-only crowd of about 500 guests at his Mar-a-Lago ballroom in Palm Beach Tuesday night. This fake case was brought only to interfere with the upcoming 2024 election, and it should be dropped immediately. The former president pleaded not guilty on all 34 counts he was charged with. Every single pundit and legal analyst said, there is no case, there's no case. They kept saying, there's no case. The front runner for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination warned the U.S. is currently a failing nation and that it sunk to the level of the old Soviet Union. We are a nation in decline. And now these radical left lunatics want to interfere with our elections by using law enforcement. A trial date has not yet been set. It's expected to take place in 2024. Prosecutors asked for it to take place in January and Trump's attorneys requested April. The next court date is December 4th. That's two months before Republicans begin their nominating process. A conviction would not prevent Trump from running for or winning the presidency in 2024. Trump's lawyers suggested they will be filing motions to dismiss based on prosecutorial misconduct and selective prosecution. Trump ended his speech by saying despite a dark cloud hanging over the country, he has no doubt America will be made great again. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Meanwhile, Stormy Daniels lost her defamation suit against Trump. Daniels was ordered to pay Trump's attorneys more than $120,000 in legal fees. That's on top of the more than $500,000 in court-ordered payments to Trump's attorneys she's already been required to pay. A judge dismissed her defamation lawsuit in 2018. She later lost an appeal and was ordered to pay Trump's legal fees for fighting both. The civil litigation is officially unrelated to Trump's case in New York. Trump denies ever having an affair with her. How did Americans react to former President Trump's criminal charges? Let's hit the streets in the cities where Trump appeared in court and made his latest speech. Florida supporters welcomed Donald Trump back to his Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach. This is only going to make him stronger. He's a fighter. All they did, they helped him. They didn't hurt him. As usual, they helped him. They have not been able to get anything on him because he's not him. This was hours after the former president turned up in a Manhattan criminal court and pleaded not guilty to more than 30 felony charges of falsifying business records. 
The historic indictment has divided opinions in the city where he was arraigned. They brought up this case to humiliate him, to stop him from wronging. This is a shared political persecution, which is very dangerous for our country. Wearing a MAGA baseball cap, Trump supporter Stephanie Liu took part in a protest in New York City. Of course, he's innocent. Not only he's innocent, he sacrificed his billionaire lifestyle to save this country. He doesn't have to be a president. He lived a good life before this. Look what happened to him once he was elected. Impeachment, Russia hoax. Other Trump supporters echo Liu's sentiments. Trump respects the due process and the rule of law. So that is why he's going to participate in this. Any other person would have sent their lawyer to respond or to essentially quell this issue. No, Trump is going to face this issue head on. He's going to face it like a man. He's going to face it like an American and essentially a good citizen the way he is. He was someone who would not be uh, prosecuting a lot of crimes, misdemeanors. And all of a sudden now he's involved with this after seven years. You know, it's clearly political in nature. Many others, however, spoke in favor of the indictment. He was not politically motivated. If you have to remember, Michael Cohen was convicted, and during the indictment, they identify felony as individual one. The only reason it wasn't followed up at that time, as we know, DOJ does not indict a sitting president. Um, I did expect the charges to come, um, mainly because uh, you know, on, online, the, the, the former president has been spewing, you know, vitriol and a lot of arguably nonsense. And um, I feel like the charges brought apart him are appropriate. I think it's about time. I think he has um, really done an injustice to our country. Um, I think that no one is above the law. He certainly should be arrested or arraigned for all of the mistakes and lies and prejudices that he's caused in our country. It, just, it, it saddens me, I mean, that what, he, what he's done to this, this country. Um, I, I have an enormous respect for the office of the presidency, for our government, our way of life. And I think this is a man that's just besmirched it, you know. I'm, I, I mean, the tawdry nature of this particular charge um, says volumes. I'm happy to see this. I'm happy to see there's consequences to actions. And when you make poor choices, that there's consequences no matter who you are, no matter if you're the president of the United States or you have a big name where you own multiple companies. Others said they were more curious about the reactions of others at this unprecedented moment. I felt like it would just be a cool experience to come down and see sort of how the country's responding to like probably what's the most monumental moment in, I think, American political history for a long time. Another COVID-19 vaccine mandate from the Biden administration is blocked by a court. It forced staff and volunteers of a federal child care program to take the shot starting in early 2022. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Head Start program provides child care to children from low-income families. The Head Start Act allows the department to set standards for the conditions of facilities. They used that to justify a vaccine mandate for Head Start workers and some volunteers. But Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton argued that the vaccine mandate went beyond the authority granted by the law. U.S. District Judge James Wesley Hendricks agreed. 
Under a 2022 ruling by a different judge, 24 states have already dropped this same mandate. Tennessee Republicans are trying to expel three of their Democratic colleagues. GOP representatives say the three lawmakers led protesters into the House floor last week. Here's the story. Tennessee Republican lawmakers introduced a resolution on Monday to expel three Democratic representatives. Republicans say the Democrats led protest chants with a bullhorn from the House floor on March 30th. The three Democrats are state representatives Justin Jones, Gloria Johnson, and Justin Pearson. The resolution says they participated in disorderly behavior and did knowingly and intentionally bring disorder and dishonor to the House of Representatives. Two of the three were already stripped of their committee assignments on Monday over their actions. In a letter dated April 3rd, Pearson wrote, If this House decides to expel me for exercising our sacred First Amendment right to help elevate the voices in our community who want to see us act to prevent gun violence, then do as you feel you must. The resolution's introduction was met with an eruption of anger. Protesters called lawmakers fascists. This video was taken by Justin Jones, one of the three Democrats. A Republican colleague of his apparently tried to snatch his phone as Jones was filming him up close. Activists demanding changes to gun laws stormed the Tennessee state capitol on March 30th after a shooter killed multiple people at a Christian school. On Tuesday, the White House responded to the Republicans' resolution. 7,000 students uh, peacefully marched to the Capitol uh, to confront their lawmakers for their failure to keep them safe at school. And what did the Republican legislators do, as you just laid out, Sung Min? Uh, they're trying to expel these three Democratic legislators who joined in the protests. The resolution to expel the three Democrats is scheduled to be voted on Thursday in an expedited process. Chicago has elected a new mayor. Progressive Democrat Brandon Johnson was voted in on Tuesday. He defeated Paul Vallis in a runoff between two Democrats to take over a city grappling with crime. Entity's Daniel Monahan brings us more. Newly elected mayor of Chicago, Brandon Johnson comes from a big working class family. I'm one of 10 siblings. My parents were also foster parents, so I learned early in life the importance of the value of negotiating and working collaboratively. Johnson squared off against Paul Vallis in a runoff election after former Mayor Lori Lightfoot finished third in the last round, and no one managed to cross the 50% line. The race was largely focused on soaring crime in the city. Johnson came under fire for his past support of the defund the police movement. During the campaign, he called for more mental health support and opportunities for young people. We do what works, and that's investing in young people. There's a direct correlation, correlation between hiring young people and, and, and violence reduction. So. Vallis preached a law and order message calling for more police officers in the run-up to the election. I'm getting broad support from the business community because they've been decimated because of high crime. Johnson will inherit a city in which the number of murders has increased by 20 percent since 2018. In 2021, there were 804 murders, the most in a quarter century. Vallis had criticized Johnson for a lack of experience. This is no time for on-the-job training. This is no time for someone who has no specifics. Uh, Education also played a major role in the campaigns. Johnson ran on a pro-public school platform, while Vallis ran on a pro-school choice agenda. Johnson will enter City Hall with an underwhelming public school system in the Windy City. The high school graduation rate in Chicago is only around 78 percent. 
Despite running as a progressive, Johnson vowed to be a mayor for all Chicagoans. Just after casting his early morning ballot, Johnson told the Epoch Times, I expect to lead the city of Chicago for everyone. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Wisconsin voters on Tuesday elected liberal Janet Protasewicz to the state Supreme Court. The victory flips control to a liberal majority ahead of major rulings on an abortion ban and other issues. Protasewicz defeated conservative candidate Daniel Kelly. The result turns a court with a 4-3 conservative majority to liberal control for the first time in 15 years. Supporters are calling it a major victory for abortion access advocates. The issue dominated the campaign. The court is expected to soon decide whether to uphold the state's 1849 abortion ban. That law took effect after the U.S. Supreme Court's decision reversing Roe v. Wade. Protosewitz spoke to supporters. This is a victory for all of us. You have entrusted me with great responsibility and I will treat the role with the highest degree of integrity. I will bring the fairness and impartiality that you have all been waiting for. The fact that we now have a majority of the Supreme Court who will be more inclined to be supportive of the issues that the majority of the people of the state of Wisconsin support, it's going to be amazing. It, it, hopefully this will be the day that turns Wisconsin back around. Republicans have portrayed Protosewitz as soft on crime and said she would use the court to advance a liberal agenda. Daniel Kelly conceded in an address to supporters and said he respects the decision made by the people of Wisconsin. The closely watched race was by far the most expensive judicial election campaign in U.S. history. Over in Florida, the state Senate passed a bill that would ban most abortions in the state after the gestational age of six weeks. The bill still needs to pass the state's GOP-led House. It includes exemptions for women facing life-threatening harm while pregnant and victims of rape, incest, and human trafficking. Physicians who perform and actively participate in abortions could be charged with a third-degree felony if it becomes law. The Heartbeat Protection Act, as it's called, passed the Florida Senate in a 26-13 vote. A North Carolina Democrat is switching parties. The change will have a huge impact on Republicans' decision-making abilities in the state. Here's more. North Carolina Democratic State Representative Trisha Cotham on Wednesday announced that she's becoming a Republican. This has big implications. Republicans hold a majority in both state house and Senate. However, Democratic Governor Roy Cooper can still veto their decisions. Cotham becoming a Republican gives the party a supermajority in both chambers, making them veto-proof. The chairman of the state's GOP said in a statement, this announcement continues to reflect that the Democratic Party is too radical for North Carolina. The values of the Republican Party align with voters. The state's House Democratic leader says the voters of her district expected her to lead within the Democrat Party. He said the appropriate action is for her to resign so that her constituents are fairly represented. Republicans might now change election laws, restrict abortions and more without needing the governor's approval. NTD reached out to Cotham for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. Just ahead, a tip leads Border Patrol agents in Texas to two stash houses and a large group of illegal immigrants. Mexico is calling on China to do more to stop shipments of the deadly drug fentanyl. We'll have the details soon when we return.
Welcome back. Ohio has a new law aimed at reducing distracted driving. It's now illegal for a person to hold a cell phone or other electronic device while driving. The idea is to get people to stop watching videos and texting while driving. Drivers can still make phone calls and text while at a red light. This law will clearly uh, save lives. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, it will spare many families uh, the grief and the sorrow uh, that unfortunately many of our families have suffered uh, in the last few years because of distracted driving. For the first six months after the law goes into effect, Ohio officers will issue warnings. Violations will be issued starting October 4th. California could require schools to screen young children for dyslexia. A bill just passed the state Senate Education Committee and is now on its way to another committee. It would require all districts to screen children in kindergarten through second grade for dyslexia annually unless parents choose to opt their child out. State Senator Anthony Portentino told the committee that it's easier to help a child overcome dyslexia when it's identified early. The bill received much support from special education organizers, educators, affected parents, and children with dyslexia. Some educator groups and teachers unions opposed the bill, saying it would add an extra burden on teachers and may misidentify learners. California is currently one of only 10 states that doesn't require dyslexia screening for students. The Biden administration is investing in removing lead from drinking water. The Environmental Protection Agency has announced $6.5 billion of funding for drinking water upgrades. The money is coming through the Drinking Water State Revolving Fund, which got a boost from the bipartisan infrastructure law. Nearly $3 billion is going toward identifying and replacing lead pipes. According to an EPA survey, there are more than 9 million lead service lines across the country. The goal, of course, is 100% lead-free water systems. Hawaii might charge fees for tourists to visit state parks and trails. The money would be used to keep the highly visited outdoor vacation sites healthy. They're thinking of charging tourists a year-long fee to rebuild coral reefs, protect native trees, and patrol for swimmers harassing wildlife. The state's governor last year campaigned on a platform of charging tourists $50 to enter the state, but lawmakers say that would violate the Constitution. They're pushing their parks and trails approach instead. Either one of these policies would be a first for any U.S. state, but not a first for tourist sites around the globe. State Representative Sean Quinlan said the policy push has to do with changing patterns of tourism in Hawaii. More visitors are choosing to hike through the state's natural beauty than play golf. The NBA's Miami Heat are cutting their partnership with disgraced crypto firm FTX. The famous waterfront arena is changing its name to the Kaseya Center after a $117 million naming rights partnership. The deal with FTX reportedly cost $135 million and was intended to last for 19 years. However, the deal fizzled after a liquidity crisis forced the cryptocurrency exchange to file for bankruptcy. The president of the Miami Heat's business operations, Eric Woolworth, said in a statement, the collapse of our previous partner caught everyone by surprise. Kaseya is a leader in internet security software and is headquartered in Miami. It's the first local company to have naming rights to the arena. The creator of Cash App and the former chief technology officer of Square has died. He was found with multiple stab wounds in San Francisco. 43-year-old tech executive Bob Lee was found by officers in the early hours of yesterday morning. He later died in the hospital. 
The San Francisco Police Department said there was a violent attack in a downtown neighborhood at around 2.30 a.m. The police haven't arrested anyone yet and haven't released details on potential suspects. The news shocked the tech industry, with online tributes pouring in. Lee served as chief product officer of cryptocurrency company MobileCoin since November 2021. Earlier in his career, he helped launch Google's Android operating system. Border Patrol agents found more than 140 illegal immigrants in Texas over the weekend. The fine came during raids of two separate smuggling stash houses. A tip-off led agents to the first group during the early hours of Sunday in El Paso. They found 51 illegal immigrants inside a residence there. Agents then found 94 illegal immigrants at a second place in the same city. The immigrants were from Guatemala, Mexico, El Salvador, and Ecuador. Despite being housed in terrible conditions, all the illegal immigrants were found to be in good health. El Paso Border Patrol agents have uncovered over 130 stash houses in the region with over 1,800 illegal immigrants since October. Mexican President Lopez Obrador is appealing to CCP leader Xi Jinping for help with fentanyl. Obrador urged the communist leader in a letter to help control shipments of the deadly drug. Here's the Mexican president at his news conference. Some U.S. legislators have blamed Mexico for the misery they suffer in their country because of fentanyl use. They have even said that if we don't stop the drug gangs operating in Mexico and smuggling the drug, they could introduce an initiative into the Congress to have the U.S. military invade our territory. Lopez Obrador says U.S. lawmakers suggested he speak to China to address the fentanyl threat. The Chinese embassy in Mexico did not have any immediate comment on the letter. Fentanyl has been blamed for fueling a surge in overdose deaths in the U.S. Republican lawmakers have accused Mexico of failing to stop drug cartels from producing and moving the deadly drug north. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, Russian leader Vladimir Putin spoke to new foreign envoys. He blamed the U.S. for the conflict with Kyiv. And how devastating is the war? A team of orthopedic surgeons is helping those injured by explosions. And Ukraine is running short of prosthetic clinicians. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Russian leader Vladimir Putin is hosting new ambassadors from the United States and Europe. The 17 ambassadors formally presented their diplomatic credentials today at a ceremony in the Kremlin. Putin says U.S. support for Ukraine's 2014 revolution led to the current war. I know you may not agree, but I have to note that the United States' use of their foreign policy tools, such as their support for the so-called color revolutions, Support in this regard for the coup in Kyiv in 2014 ultimately led to today's crisis in Ukraine. Kyiv's 2014 uprising ousted a pro-Russian president. Russia responded by seizing the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine and supporting the armed separatist movement that controls Ukraine's east. Putin said relations between Moscow and Washington are falling into a deep crisis, the reason being different approaches to the formation of world order. He also blamed the European Union for starting a geopolitical standoff with Russia. The impact of war can be hard to look at, and thousands have been wounded in Ukraine. Now highly specialized plastic surgeons are trying to reconstruct damaged faces. 
It's called the Face the Future mission. We want to warn you, some viewers may find these images disturbing. Look left and right. The impact of war is hard to look at. Look at my finger. The difficulty that, that I'm having is that I don't know what anything looks like behind the skin here. I can make an opening that looks like there's an eye, but they're never going to look like normal eyelids. And the surgical realities are nothing like civilian life. Okay. We think we can get the mouth working better. Face the Future Mission Director Anthony Brissett says the blast injuries are often devastating. One of the things that we can do is improve the appearance of the scar. Multi-level bone and soft tissue injuries. It really get, does not get any more complex than this, um, even in a combat scenario. They brought together highly specialized plastic surgeons, anesthesiologists and nurses from the US and Canada to reconstruct and repair. All that bone is missing. What many cannot. Roman Belinsky is one of their patients. He's invited us to his home. What do I think of him? I'm proud of my son, says his mother, Lesia. I'm proud of him. I'm proud of the fact that he didn't run away. He didn't hide. Early in the war, his mechanized infantry brigade faced the brunt of Russia's invasion and their oncoming tanks. He says many in his brigade were lost. We were all like one family, he says. You know, somewhere you feel your guilt that I didn't also die like they did. Roman lived. And this will be his third surgery with Dr. John Frodo. What, what bothers you the most now? Our hope is that at some point they leave happy. You know, then I don't see them again. So this is where we shine, uh, which is in the operating room. All of the steps and activities that we were doing before getting here uh, is really to get us to this point. Roman surgery is one of the first of the day. He says Dr. Frodo and the team have already put him back together and saved his life. A person's appearance is the reflection of their inner spirit, of their inner self to the world. And we must never forget that. But everyone wants to have a facial appearance that others want to look at and would want to get to know you. It's part of the human condition. It's a stark reminder of the human cost of Russia's war on Ukraine. Right now, there aren't enough prosthetic clinicians to meet a growing demand. Again, we want to warn you, some viewers may find these images disturbing. Ukrainian serviceman Dmitry Zilko's prosthetic limb has given him a new lease of life. His right leg was amputated after a shell landed nearby during fighting in the eastern town of Bakhmut. I am very happy. As soon as I stood on my prosthetic leg, I felt alive. I was laying down for four months. My left leg was broken too. One of the muscles is still torn. Zilko is just one of many wounded soldiers at this clinic for artificial limbs in Kiev. So many, in fact, that there is a shortage of prosthetists. Demand has skyrocketed. This particular site would need four times the number of specialists to cope comfortably. Andrei Ovcherenko is the head of the Without Limits clinic. There really is a shortage of prosthetists because there are a huge number of people requiring prosthetic treatment coming in every day. If there is a counteroffensive, the frontline battles will be even more severe. The number of patients will increase. I think it would be great to have more prosthetists, even those from abroad. 
we will provide everyone with prosthetic limbs, but some may have to wait in a line for some time. Without limits, one of around 80 prosthetic centres in Ukraine made about 7,000 prosthetic components in the second half of last year, equal to the total produced in 2021, but it's still not enough. The number of patients has also tripled. Ukraine's health minister says specialist at clinics like this one are simply overloaded. On a recent morning, the clinic assessed two soldiers for artificial legs and adjusted the new limb of a third. A handful more came for rehabilitation. Dennis lost his left leg to a Russian missile in Kramatorsk. My close ones and my girlfriend don't let my spirit fade and my will to live. He plans to return to civilian life once he's recuperated. But despite the trauma of losing a limb and the possible wait for prosthetics, Ovcherenko says many amputee soldiers still volunteer to return to the war after treatment. Prosthetics charity Protez Hub says Ukraine has around 300 prosthetists, technicians and apprentices, but only five can fit functional devices like hands and arms. Artificial limbs like elbows are in particular demand, they say, with some having to wait up to six months to be fitted and at least 100 patients were treated overseas. Experts say Ukraine will need big investment in infrastructure and staff to deal with amputees needing help for years to come. The husband of former Scottish leader Nicola Sturgeon has been arrested. It's part of an investigation into the funding of the Scottish National Party that's currently in power. Peter Merle was the chief executive of the party. He resigned last month, around the same time his wife resigned as Scotland's leader. A police van could be seen outside the couple's home in Glasgow. Police set up a blue tent outside. They say Merle was arrested as a suspect and is being questioned by detectives. The investigation is looking at what happened to $750,000 raised by Scottish independence advocates in 2017. The money was supposed to be used for spending on that issue, but was missing from the party's filed accounts. The arrest and ongoing investigation comes after a bruising few months for the Scottish National Party, which has dominated Scottish politics for most of the last two decades. Authorities have seized a sprawling dark web marketplace popular with cyber criminals. It's a multinational crackdown dubbed Operation Cookie Monster. Now, a banner at the top of the site, Genesis Market, says domains belonging to the organization have been seized by the FBI. Logos of other European, Canadian, and Australian police organizations were also emblazoned across the site, along with that of a cybersecurity firm. Britain's National Crime Agency estimates that the service hosted about 80 million credentials and digital fingerprints stolen from more than 2 million people. 17 countries were involved in the operation and about 120 people were arrested. The site had been active since 2018. The British agency said it operated by selling credentials from as little as 70 cents to hundreds of dollars depending on the stolen data available. Still to come, the French government is planning to reinstate healthcare workers who were fired for not getting a COVID-19 vaccine. Find out the conditions. Manchester has a new way to help the city raise money. Tourists will notice it when they pay their hotel bills. Stay tuned for more on that when we return.
Good to have you back with us. The French government has announced it will reinstate health care and emergency workers who refused to get the COVID vaccine. But it remains to be seen what the conditions of the reemployment will be. Some health care workers say the decision may create tension in the working place. NTD's France correspondent David Vives spoke with a suspended firefighter who explains the case. French Health Minister François Braun said last week that healthcare and emergency workers who refused to take the COVID vaccine would soon be permitted to work again. The minister said a decree would be issued following experts' advice. France is the last country in Europe that has not yet reintegrated its suspended health workers. Being suspended in France means one couldn't legally do any other work nor obtain state aid. Firefighter Pierrick Thévenon has been one of them. He was forced to stop working in September 2021. Thévenon says a government decree won't really solve the problem. This might be a good thing. The problem is that he's just talking about lifting the vaccine mandate and in no way repealing the law that upholds the obligation to get vaccinated. So in other words, they are only lifting the vaccine mandate by decree as it's provided for in the law. And this means that, at any moment, as the law still exists, they can take a decree to reinforce it. The health minister says that from a total of 2.7 million healthcare staff, less than 2,000 have refused the jab and were suspended. But according to nationalist leader and MP Marine Le Pen, the actual number stands at around 15,000. Thévenon says he heard from his former colleagues that many firefighters cheated on the mandate. A phenomenal number of firefighters across France are falsely vaccinated. You have to understand that many of them did what they could because they had, for example, a mortgage to pay off and children to feed, and they had no other option to continue living. But there are also staff members who have never seen a single needle be put into their arm. We must not forget. There were firefighters in charge of vaccination centers, so it was very easy to vaccinate either the sink or the rubbish can. I mean, to throw away the vaccines. The health minister's announcement was received with mixed reactions from hospital staff. Some union workers welcomed the move, but others said it will create tensions at work. Thévenon says those who refuse the jab are still demonized. It gives the impression that unvaccinated healthcare workers and the like are not welcomed by the majority. I mean, in real life, I don't see that. We are in the process of shaping an entire perception around that. Basically, there would be the vaccinated caregivers who held the line, who saved everyone and so on, and who wanted to protect their patients. And then the non-vaccinated who don't believe in science and so on. That's the situation. We are trying to maintain, in fact, two images with the heroes on one side and the bad ones on the other. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Norway wants to electrify all of its industry, but the move is raising concerns. The Nordic country, until now a net exporter of electricity, might face shortages and higher prices in the future as a result. Here in southern Norway sits the country's biggest onshore industrial site. It's planning to go fully electric by replacing its use of natural gas with power from the grid. It's part of a nationwide push to cut the country's CO2 emissions and comply with the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. 
One of the companies here is fertilizer maker Yara International. It uses vast quantities of natural gas to make the hydrogen it needs to produce ammonia. Combustion of natural gas emits carbon dioxide, among other gases. This factory is currently uh, emitting 800,000 tonnes. And Yara, we need to do something with it. And the best option to do that is to electrify the plant. In the future, it hopes to produce the hydrogen it needs using electricity. But as of now, there is not enough supply of electricity or the grid capacity to power full-scale electrification. The director of the Erawea industrial site said they would need five times more power. Building new infrastructure to power the site can be problematic too. What we actually need is more power lines. <clears throat> you know, power lines are always troublesome because the people don't tend not to like to have them in the backyard. And so it's the same in, in this area. So we have to convince the locals that we need these power lines and we need about five times more power than we have today. That's quite enormous. Norway was until now a net power exporter. It produced a record 154 terawatt hours of electricity in 2020, some 90% of it from hydropower in dammed reservoirs and along rivers and the rest from wind farms. But according to the country's national grid operator, this can change, partly due to its plans to electrify big polluting sites. Norwegian voters are concerned about receiving higher bills for power. Historically, natural energy reserves in the form of hydropower have meant that electricity was cheap. Everyone is fighting about the little power we have, so I do think we have to make it but it's going to be very, very hard. Options to expand hydropower are limited and building wind turbines has run into resistance. In early March, indigenous and environmental campaigners, including Sweden's Greta Thunberg, blocked entrances to the energy ministry to protest against 151 new wind turbines built on land used by Sami reindeer herders. Petroleum and Energy Minister Turja Asland said authorities were doing all they could to stop Norway becoming a net power importer by 2027. The government has changed gear to expand renewable energy in Norway. That is important to the government. We have a giant drive when it comes to offshore wind power. Norway said it's ready to limit supplies to other countries if needed. Modular homes in Cambridge, England are providing refuge for the homeless. They're compact, cheap to build, and offer those in need a place to get back on their feet. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the shelters. 52-year-old Eamon Kelly used to be homeless. Now he lives in this modular home. He remembers when he first moved in. I was just very emotional because I had everything here and everything was brand new. As soon as I walked through that door, table, the bedroom, the wardrobe, the cupboards, everything was brand spanking new. Jimmy's is a local charity that helps the homeless. Typically, the organization helps around 250 people every year. They can provide beds for 80 people across its hostel, shared housing, and modular homes. Mark Allen is the charity's chief executive. He explained how modular homes are helping those in need. So what modular homes, homes do 
is they use a bit of land that wouldn't be used for any other purpose. So you can put the modular homes on that piece of land for a few years, up to 10 years. Alia Future Homes built these modular structures in Cambridge in 2020. The organization builds modular homes across the UK. What it is, it's highly energy efficient and it comes effectively complete when uh, the new residents move in. So we've given a lot of thought to it and then we get the residents involved near the end in deciding exactly how they want it organized. It's tight, but there's everything a resident needs. Each home has a kitchen, living room, bedroom, and small bathroom. There's green space around the homes and a small vegetable patch. Some people need their own front door, they need their own space because they have things that they're dealing with and they need to close the front door and have their own space. But getting a one-bedroom flat in somewhere like Cambridge is extremely difficult. The Cambridge Initiative also helps people address mental and physical health, reconnect with family members, and take steps towards getting a job. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Checking into a hotel in Manchester now comes with an extra cost. The city has become the first in the UK to introduce a tourist tax. And city's Daniel Monaghan has more on the new policy. The tax is one British pound per night per room. Authorities say the money raised will help run conferences, festivals, and keep the city's streets clean. The city council calls it an innovative plan, but what do guests think? I think it's fine. It's only a pound, isn't it? And I read that it, it's contributing to the city. Just the same. It doesn't. I don't mind if the money's going back into the city. I'm in a relatively fortunate position because it's just me and it's just for one night. And I think if there's lots of people saying lots of nights, it's a different story. The nightly charge follows similar moves in other popular European destinations, including Venice, Rome and Barcelona. Edinburgh, Scotland is also planning an equivalent move. UK hospitality chief executive Kate Nichols wonders whether such tourist taxes are actually effective. If you pay £4 if you're a family of four a night and you're staying for a weekend, that could be a meal out that you're not going to have, or it could be a coffee or a visit to, uh, to, to a local attraction. Hospitality staff here disagree. It's just one pound and twenty, so it's less than a pint. It's, uh, it's less than a chips if you go even to McDonald's. But amid a challenging financial climate, guests are counting costs more than usual. And every penny in each segment counts. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Planning a summer vacation? Don't forget to take a buddy. Southwest Airlines is bringing back its companion pass that allows travelers to designate one person to fly with them for free. To qualify, a member of Southwest's frequent flyer program needs to register for the promotion. Then they have to purchase a ticket by Wednesday evening for a flight before May 24th. Once that's done, a companion pass will be in their account on August 15th. The Buddy Pass will work on as many flights as they want between August 15th and September 30th. Still to come, mountain rescue dogs train for avalanches in the French Alps. When a disaster occurs in real life, the dogs and their handlers have to react quickly. Get the story after the break. Fresh snow and sunshine make for perfect ski conditions, but weather on the mountain can change in an instant. When an avalanche strikes, it's a race against the clock to find any survivors. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on the dogs that make rescue possible. 
Mountain rescue dogs are training in the French Alps. Stash, a flat coat retriever, is waiting for the command to search for pretend victims. The bond between dog and handler is critical for success. It's mostly about having a connection with the dog. It's a lot to spend a lot of time with him when he's little, all the time, almost all the time with him. And then later, based on play, this is his sausage. There you go. That's what we train him with a lot. At the top of the mountain, German Shepherd Nell is picking up a scent. Underneath the snow, a survivor patiently waits to be found. In just a few moments, Nell finds him and begins to dig him out. Over the months, the aim is to make a hole that is closed and out of sight, always with Dad. If it works well, we do it. We continue for a year. And then from time to time, in this way, we'll start trying with a stranger. When an avalanche occurs in real life, the team must react fast. People trapped under the snow risk hypothermia and hypoxia. It's really oppressive. And then when they close the hole, you see the light fading. We start to. We are a bit in a slightly fetal position, so breathing isn't easy. You have to concentrate on breathing to relax. One factor that helps is that under the snow, you can hear what's going on outside very well. While the dogs train for rescue missions, their human counterparts check the mountain for hazards. Avalanches are the big one, but rocks, cliffs, ice, trees, and obscured obstacles are dangers as well. Dangerous areas are cordoned off. Ski Patrol also set off controlled avalanches to reduce the risk to skiers. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Take a look at these cute twins from a UK zoo. These Sumatran tiger cubs are still a little shy, but they have started to emerge from their den at the Chester Zoo. The female cubs, named Alif and Raya, were born in January. They were part of a conservation breeding program to help the critically endangered species. The zoo says just 350 are left in the wilds of Indonesia. Experts blame their dwindling numbers on habitat loss and poaching. The superstar of the Egyptian pharaohs, Ramses the Great, is at the heart of an exhibition that opened this week in Paris. Officials unveiled his coffin to a crowd of reporters and cameras. Ramses II was one of the most famous pharaohs in history. He ruled Egypt for 67 years, making, marking the longest reign of any pharaoh. He was the icon of Egyptian monarchy and played a key role in expanding the kingdom while bringing peace and prosperity. This coffin is made of cedar and dates back to the end of the 18th dynasty, but it wasn't originally designed for Ramesses himself and was likely covered in gold and precious stones. The surface was later scrapped and painted in yellow with details enhanced with bright colors and the eyes underlined in black. It truly is a historical artifact because the coffin is older than Ramesses himself. It's a kind of safety coffin, which was taken so that Ramses would be protected. And also because this coffin has moved places during history. We have texts which tell the story of how it was moved in his father's tomb, and then another small tomb, before being placed in a hideout where it was discovered in 1881. Historians say the coffin will serve as a historical document shedding light on the turbulent period at the end of the New Kingdom of Egypt and how the Egyptians of the time protected their king. The Paris exhibition will close on September 6th. Many people experience depression symptoms at some point in their lives. However, there are a variety of things that can alleviate it. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. 
Depression is uncomfortable, but there are some things that people can do in the morning to reduce symptoms. Let's get five tips starting with the importance of sunlight. Number one, soak yourself in sunlight. Sunlight exposure is one of the best things you can do for an immediate boost to mental well-being. It can improve mood and boost cognitive function. Sunlight is used as a lifestyle medicine or nature-assisted therapy for depression. It is powerful for reducing depressive symptoms. Next, let's look at nutrition. Number two, eat a nutrient-dense breakfast. What foods do we need when we feel depressed? Foods that have a positive effect on depression. These include fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, and olive oil. Eating fish is a great idea too. These foods are all staples of the well-studied Mediterranean diet. This diet is linked to a longer and healthier life. Avoid all junk foods such as candies, chips, and soda is these lower mood. Number three, get physical. You don't have to do CrossFit to reap the benefits of exercise. Effective methods include walking, hiking, swimming, biking, gentle weight training, and mobility work. Exercise has long proven to improve not only physical health, but also mental. Next, let's look at forest bathing. Number four, bathe in a forest or park. No need for soap and water. Forest bathing is a practice of submerging oneself in nature. It allows you to disconnect from technology and other stresses. When you calmly spend time in nature, studies show that you are also lowering your blood pressure and cortisol levels. In short, this reduces stress, which can help to alleviate depression. And finally, number five, read something you enjoy. Reading aloud has been demonstrated to be an effective method for stress reduction. People living with depression may experience cognitive challenges. By doing activities that target these cognitive abilities, one can help strengthen the neural pathways. In the morning, put away your phone and opt for a book, magazine, or article that you enjoy. Your brain will thank you. A school sports day in Jamaica's capital, Kingston, welcomed a top competitor. She beat the parent relay race with ease, leaving other moms in the dust. Parents at this sports day feeling the heat. That's Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, one of the greatest sprinters ever. The three-time Olympic gold medalist leaving other parents panting during this short run in front of her son. The 36-year-old has run the third fastest women's time ever and dominated the schoolyard race, much to the applause of onlookers. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.